Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, One great Democratic president there, Lyndon Baines Johnson. He knew how to pull it together and certainly uh, unite the party. But it hasn't been united for a long time, and it sure is disunited now. Snatching defeat from the jaws of victory is unfortunately not all that common. It's hard enough to be in a position to look back at dumb mistakes that were made in the past. It is extremely painful to watch dumb mistakes as they happen, sensing a train wreck in progress. In a new article entitled The Coming Democratic Crack-Up, our guest today, journalist Robert Perry, writes, If the Democratic Party presses ahead and nominates hawkish Hillary Clinton for president, it could recreate the conditions that caused the party to splinter in the late 1960s and early 1970s when anti-war and pro-war Democrats turned on one another and opened a path for decades of Republican dominance in the White House, end of quote. Have the new style Democrats, as seen by uh, hawkish Hillary Clinton, abandoned the working and middle class base to their peril? just going for the easy money, catering to the rich and powerful? Or is it time to forget tradition and history and just accept and support that a new style Democrat is necessary uh, to govern today and to win today? I certainly have my doubts. Well, Robert Perry broke many of the Iran-Contra stories in the 1980s for the Associated Press and Newsweek. His latest book, Neck Deep, The Disastrous Presidency of George W. Bush, was written with two of his sons, Sam and Nat. His two previous books are Secrecy and Privilege, The Rise of the Bush Dynasty from, the water, from Watergate to Iraq, and Lost History, Contras, Cocaine, the Press, and Project Truth. Robert Perry, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive and doing our part to keep democracy alive. Let's, let's start by addressing the foreign policy positions of Hillary Clinton. First, let's look at what is known from her history, and then let's discuss how this squares with the Democratic base. So first, what is her record as Secretary of State when it comes to foreign policy positions? Robert, um, Hillary Clinton is, uh, is, is, is a very hawkish Democrat. She's, um, in many ways, uh, very similar to the neoconservatives, uh, some of whom have embraced her as, the, as their choice now, especially with the Republican Party um, being taken over by the, the, the Trump forces, who, are, who don't really share many of the neoconservative views about um, uh, U.S. 
projecting power around the world uh, and doing regime changes and so forth. So, but, but Hillary Clinton has been pretty much on board for those kinds of foreign policy adventures um, pretty much all along. Uh, even when she was a first lady, she was uh, enthusiastic about the U.S. Uh, interventions um, in, in uh, the old Yugoslavia. Um, but when she was senator from New York, she famously voted for the Iraq War. Yes. And then, and supported it really until 2006 when she uh, basically had to abandon it because um, if she had any hope of winning the Democratic nomination in 2008, uh, she ran even against President, uh, then Senator Obama, uh, as a much more hawkish Democrat than he was. Um, and then as Secretary of State, uh, she uh, charted a, a very aggressive um, hawkish foreign policy, very much in line with the neoconservatives. Right. She um, supported a, a, a coup in Honduras in 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, she tried to undermine uh, President Obama's efforts to open channels to Iran um, along around the uh, nuclear issue. She uh, pushed aggressively for the uh, for the U.S. military intervention in Libya in um, in 2011 against but the wishes the of the Pentagon. Yeah, throw and murder of Gaddafi, mm-hmm. but has left Libya as a essentially a failed state. Yes, she um, pushed for escalations of U.S. military forces in Afghanistan again, in a way that President Obama was not uh, eager for, but essentially accepted. Uh, he did stand up to her when she was pushing for a uh, another U.S. intervention, at least uh, a, a proxy war uh, in Syria. Um, uh, he did not want to go as far as she did in terms of supporting uh, rebel forces in Syria. But Hillary Clinton has charted a, a really a long, of, for, for a number of years, a, a, a policy that very much meshes with what the neoconservatives have, have favored. And, and in fact, people like uh, Robert Kagan, one of the most prominent neoconservatives in Washington, one of the co-founders of the Project for the New American Century, which uh, was, the, was an architect of the, uh, yeah. the war in Iraq, Kagan has come out and said he supports Hillary Clinton um, because he feels that she's a much preferable choice, from his point of view, uh, than Donald Trump. We're speaking with uh, Robert Perry, noted uh, journalist, an actual journalist, not just a talking head that we have so much of these days, who's done his homework, and we're talking about the potential crack-up of the Democratic Party. And certainly, in the past, Democrats have uh, been, at least the, the people on the ground, there's always been kind of a split between the, the people in power like Lyndon Johnson, like Hubert Humphrey, who wanted to retain power, uh, who are not so anti-war. But you have the people on the ground, the actual numbers of voters, the millions of people, as compared to the few hundreds of people in the Democratic National Committee. I I wonder how much of a crack-up this could be. And we have to look back to 1968 on this. You know, the tragic downfall of an otherwise great genuinely progressive president, Lyndon Johnson, was because of his hawkishness on the Vietnam War. Of of course, he came in as the peace candidate in 1964. How did this play out with the 
normally Democratic voting electorate in 1968, Robert? Well, what I think is going to be difficult for the Democrats is that is that they have become more or less the peace party. Now, obviously, they've supported wars, uh, and their uh, and even President Obama, who ran more as a peace candidate in 2008, um, has thought himself fighting, as he's put it, seven different uh, or ordering military operations in seven different countries. So I'm, I'm not saying that the Democratic Party has been any any sense of, of a pacifist party. Certainly. But in, in, in the 1960s, um, President Johnson, uh, still recalling the, 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 the damage done by the McCarthy era, uh, when there was like right. who lost China, right. uh, was very much afraid that he and the Democrats would be pinned with the with the uh, the label that they they were the ones who lost Indochina. So after winning the election in '64, where he ran as the peace alternative, uh, where uh, Barry Goldwater was much more hawkish in terms of what to do with um, uh, in terms of fighting conflicts around the world. Uh, Johnson plunged into the Vietnam War, and that created a uh, a crisis within the Democratic Party, which plays out in 1968, where much of the party base turned against the war and sought to drive LBJ from from office uh, behind uh, initially the candidacy of of, of Gene McCarthy, who um, did not win in New Hampshire but ran a, a decent race there. And uh, to such a degree that uh, that President Johnson um, removed himself from the race in um, late March of in March of uh, 1968, and then we saw play out this division of the Democratic Party um, between the, the the anti-Vietnam War side and the and those backing um, then Vice President Humphrey, right. who were more in, uh, determined to continue the war. Now. There was, uh, there was probably uh, even on the Humphrey side a, a very much discomfort about that, but the but that dynamic led to uh, the party beginning to splinter in the in the 1970s, where you had uh, the more hawkish Democrats, some of them uh, we now call the neoconservatives, right. switching over to uh, to the Republicans, especially by the time Ronald Reagan came in, you saw these. How hawkish Democrats um, uh, joining his administration in droves, um, and the Democrats being sort of pinned as this, um, as first of a very divided party, but then one also that was not seen as standing up to America's enemies. So that continued really. Well, it opened the door for uh, 12 years of Republican rule from 1981 through uh, 93. And Bill Clinton was able to um, win the presidency in '93, in part because he he so-called triangulated many of these issues, and the issue of war and peace was not that big a deal at that point. However, now as we go through what appears to be almost perpetual war, right. uh, certainly since um, since since 2001, mm-hmm. um, this issue of war and peace has become more important, and. The and in the case of Obama, he, he ran as a peace candidate. Uh, and you might say that he has run a sort of reluctant war policy. Uh, but with Hillary Clinton, you're getting someone who is pretty much an aggressive war advocate, 
much more interested in pursuing these conflicts in the Middle East. Um, she seems eager to uh, to push the Iranians, maybe to get out of the uh, this uh, nuclear accord, which would open again the door to hmm. possible war there. She wants to uh, she wants to intervene with direct military operations in Syria. Yes. She calls it uh, developing a safe zone, but that really amounts to invading Syria. Um, and 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 around the around almost around the world, she's taken a more aggressive position, uh, much more hawkish position than President Obama. So the the Democratic Party will now face, assuming that Hillary Clinton's the nominee, and that if she were to win um, this fall, they would be facing the prospect of having a similar division of the party between people who would favor a more peaceful approach to the world and and the Hillary the Hillary Clinton approach, which is a more warlike approach to the world. Uh, and that could lead to another split, like we saw in the late 60s and early 70s, where the Democratic Party essentially went to war against itself. Well, and I wonder if, if we're seeing that now. And a lot of people have, have said they don't like the triangulation that uh, the Clintons basically own. What, just define that term. What is triangulation, and how does it fit into this discussion? Well, triangulation was a concept that is most associated with the, with the Clintons going back to the 1990s, and that was to, to take um, the Republican position, perhaps a more conservative one, and what much of the Democratic base might want, a more liberal position, and to, and to triangulate the two to get a more centrist position. Uh, and that has been central to the, to the way that the Clintons have governed, uh, was certainly part of Bill Clinton's uh, uh, political repertoire. And, and it's something that I think you'll see Hillary Clinton very eagerly uh, move mm-hmm. back to uh, once she's nailed down the the Democratic nomination, if she's able to. Yes. Um, there's been a great deal of talk in Washington about how she wants to pivot to the center. Um, so far, th- she's not been able to do that pivot, at least not in many ways, uh, because she feels she still has to um, address the issues raised by uh, Senator Sanders and his supporters. But the thinking is that she will make a very dramatic move to the center to try to grab uh, uh, disaffected Republicans who aren't comfortable with Donald Trump as their nominee, but if she presents a kind of centrist, triangulated position, um, the thinking is that she'll be able to pick up some of those votes. Well, I I almost feel sorry for her, Robert Perry, because, you know, she has to win the Democrats, and she, which she has not done yet, uh, and a lot of Democrats are very, very upset with so many of her tactics and her, you know, the Clintons uh, turning their backs on the base of the party. But there is that, I mean, just electorally speaking, you want to win the general election. So there's, you know, the, the Bernie Sanders, most of the traditional Democrats that I know, virtually all of them, the, you know, older people, uh, you know, in their 60s and older who who have been Democrats all their lives, they're all like, oh, of course we're with Bernie, because Hillary Clinton is something else. But there could be, and I'm sure there is the argument made, that in order to win the general election, one has to move to some perceived center. And, And Robert Perry, as you were talking about the center, I wasn't sure whether you meant she should go to her left to get to the center or go to the right, because I 
frankly not sure what the center is. It seems to me uh, she is significantly to the right of center, certainly way to the right of Obama on foreign policy. But, you know, it's trying to, you know, you got to get through one thing to get to the nomination and something else to win the general election. And uh, maybe something about uh, losing your soul to to win. I, I don't really know. And, you know, how much do people care about foreign policy? That, to me, is kind of an, an open question, which I want to get into. Uh, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with uh, Robert Perry, uh, author of, of uh, many books and broke, who broke many of the Iran-Contra stories in the 1980s, talking about is the Democratic Party cracking up? Well, is it cracking up before the election, or might it limp through the election and then crack up afterwards? Got to get back to a little bit of history. Vice President Hubert Humphrey uh, was running, in, of course, in 1968 when uh, Johnson pulled out with the intent of ending the war in Vietnam. He didn't feel like he could end it as he was still president. Of course, Kissinger came in and messed it up really badly and made sure the war would continue, but that's another story. So I wonder what your thinking might be if Humphrey had come out against the war after he got the nomination in the summer of 68 and against his boss, the president, would he have won over Nixon? Was the anti-war feeling strong enough then? And is that lesson applicable for today, 2016? What do you think? Well, I think it does often take a while for the American public to to make decisions, especially going against uh, a U.S. war policy. Uh, the initial inclinations are to support the, the American troops and whatever the president has decided is necessary. And, and usually when a war is being whipped up, there's also a lot, a lot of propaganda that goes with it and makes it hard for the public to, to see through some of it. Um, uh, people who are not, uh, not enthusiastic for the war can be demonized or marginalized and called patri- uh, anti- anti-American, right. traitors. right. So you have that that phenomenon. It does take a while. And in, in 1968, of course, you had uh, American troops being sent in large numbers mm-hmm. to, uh, to to Vietnam, and there was the draft that was taking a, a lot of people across the board uh, uh, into into that conflict. So that was sort of the basis, I think, of of the growing anger by '68. Uh, but it was still. I, apparently a minority position, or not a, as strong a position as, as the anti-war position became subsequently. Right. Uh, however, an interesting element there, and I deal with this in my, in my uh, uh, most recent book, America's Stolen Narrative, was, that, was that, that President Johnson actually was sincere in March of 1968 when he announced he would not seek re-election. And he uh, said he would devote his time to bringing the war to an end. Uh, we now know, based on documents that I found at the um, at the at the LBJ Library in Austin, Texas, um, that the ev- and the evidence is now quite strong that that he faced an effort by the Nixon campaign to undermine his his peace talks. Um, it's quite dramatic, actually, to go through these documents because Johnson knew pretty much what Nixon was up to yep. in terms of using uh, an intermediary, uh, Anna Chenault, and other, there are other intermediaries, but she was the principal one, um, to reach out to the South Vietnamese government to get them to uh, boycott the Paris peace talks. So 
the interesting thing is that is that even though Johnson knew this uh, and even confronted Nixon over it, you know, in a very dramatic phone call, hmm. um, Nixon stuck stuck with his plan, and Johnson didn't didn't have quite the nerve, and his advisors advised him against going public. Um, so instead of the American people knowing about this uh, in real time, uh, the, the the file, which I, which is actually labeled the X envelope, um, <laughs> and, and is called by the by the people at the at the uh, at the LBJ library their X file. Mm. This this remarkable file of uh, based largely on on uh, FBI and NSA intercepts. Um, Shows that that Johnson um, that Johnson uh, was 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 completely on top of what was happening, uh, but it was kept secret with the idea that it would be too damaging to the country if if this came out and Nixon still won. Uh-huh. Um, the feel the feeling was that if, uh, if the public learned about this uh, uh, after Nixon's victory, yeah. um, then they would they would it would. It would bring about a great deal of public anger toward the sitting president. So, for what they viewed the, as the good of the country, mm-hmm. um, the Democrats around Johnson, his top advisors, people like Rusk and um, uh, and Clark Clifford, advised him to stay silent, which he did. And there was a plan, which you, which you can read in, this, in these documents, um, to keep these documents secret for fifty years. And possibly, even then, keep them secret for another fifty years. Ultimately, the decision was made to begin to declassify them, but not until the 1990s. And even to this day, some of them remain classified. But um, you can now actually access them. And and I went through. There are also now uh, phone calls that Johnson would Johnson would record most of his phone calls. Right. And you can listen to uh, the interplay between him and Nixon, between uh, Johnson and uh, other. Politicians at the time talking about uh, this Nixon operation, and you can now see the documents that, that Johnson was basing his complaints on. So it's a pretty remarkable story, and I, I think if they had, if Johnson had gone public with this, which he was, which he seemed inclined to do, but he was more or less talked out of, mm. um, then know, uh, the American no. people might well have elected Humphrey, and our history could be very different today. And I wonder if. The anti-war sentiment was wide enough and strong enough at the time in 68 so that Humphrey, who never did buck his boss, he, he never did come out against the war, I, I, uh, there was a lack of enthusiasm amongst Democrats who did vote you know, for uh, Humphrey. But I wonder if he had won the war, if the anti-war sentiment was strong enough. What are your thoughts, Robert? Well, it, it appeared that when Humphrey... Uh, supported the the bombing halt. There was a bombing halt that was that Johnson uh, ordered at the end of October of uh, of 1968, and that provided a boost for Humphrey's campaign. Right. Uh, it brought many of the Democrats True. back together. There there had been this very bitter split, as you remember, of uh, around the Chicago convention. Oh and, yeah. Uh, when, when, of course, Robert Kennedy, who had entered the race, was had been assassinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the no. party forces were there. Uh, there were these Kennedy delegates. Uh, there were um, there was this effort uh, to to uh, 
to essentially shut down by, by the Democratic Party leadership to sort of shut down this this whole debate. Back then, there were a lot fewer uh, there were a lot fewer uh, primaries, and there was still a lot of um, decision making by the party bosses in terms of how the delegates would vote. So you had this very ugly scene at the Democratic convention, which spilled out into the streets of Chicago, uh, and the result of that was to have a great deal of anger on the part of uh, the, the anti-war Democrats yeah. against what they saw as being strong-armed by the, by the LBJ-Humphrey hmm. side. Humphrey was, had not really entered the primaries, and he was, right. he was chosen to be the nominee. Now, when, when Johnson made some peace moves in October of right, so 1968, that mollified some of those Democrats. Sure. So they seemed to come back on board right. to some degree for Humphrey. His numbers improved, and as you remember, he just, yeah, even though Nixon's uh, nearly treasonous effort to, to undermine these peace talks, even though that was not known to the public, um, Nixon only won by yeah, you just know, barely. hundreds of hundred thousand votes or so. Yeah. It was an extremely close election. And, um, and, and I think now if, if people believe that if those peace talks had been, more, had been allowed to be successful right. and Johnson had been able to, to pull that off before the election, Humphrey probably would have won. And I think it's interesting, as you were describing the feeling that the uh, party leaders were strong-arming the, uh, the you know, traditional Democrats, the peace Democrats, the anti-war Democrats. Boy, that sure sounds familiar. There's been a lot of strong-arming now. And the, uh, the party establishment, the Democratic National Committee, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, have been clearly on the side of its uh, anointed one, Hillary Clinton. And they have done some questionable things, shall we say, while demanding that the Bernie Sanders people be, quote, civil, unquote. They want uh, to, to run the show and uh, maybe rig things a little bit here and there, uh, play fast and loose with uh, counting the numbers, it's it's kind of rough, and it certainly is uh, a lot of uh, accusations of corruption. And if the uh, Bernie Sanders people complain at all, as of course they would, if they show any anger, then it's an easy policy, an easy strategy for the establishment to say, "Oh, look, they're behaving badly. It's them. They're behaving badly." I this reminds me of 1968, and we do have a convention coming up uh, in July of 2016. I don't think it's going to be boring. I I think there's going to be a lot of split within the party, and that's what we're talking about here with our guest uh, journalist Robert Perry. His article is uh, the coming Democratic crack up. And to pursue this a bit more, I wonder if perhaps the prospect of more wars, as compared to 1968, maybe it no longer motivates the Democratic base quite as much. I mean, I care a great deal about foreign policy. I don't, I just, I'm not sure that many people do. Do you think the party leadership figures that what used to be a widespread and powerful anti-war sentiment is less strong now because of 9-11? Do you think they think that, and could that perception be accurate? What do you think, Robert Perry? Well, certainly the different one, one difference is that in 1968 there was the draft, um, so that meant that a lot more Americans from a lot more uh, diverse uh, uh, demographics were being sent over to 
uh, to Vietnam. Yeah. Though the wealthier people had a benefit because they could get college uh, yes, deferments, deferments and so right. forth. But it was still something where a lot of people were being sucked into this conflict and into the uh, in a much more direct way than we see today. So, so I think in that sense, yes, I think the um, there's probably a, a less immediate. Uh, dramatic feeling about the war because it's being the war, the fighting is being carried out by a relatively narrow number of Americans and, or narrow uh, subculture of Americans who, uh, who tend to sign up for the military because their families are supportive of the military or for other reasons. So um, I think that probably has insulated the country some from the effect of these wars. But I do think there are there, there certainly was a very strong anti-war movement uh, around 2006 um, in reaction to the war in Iraq and the lies and, de- and deceptions that were were used to get the country into that war, and the fact that it was going so badly. Um, so you saw that affect the the decisions to um, of the voters to throw out the Republican uh, congressional uh, majorities in 2006. And then, of course, you saw in 2008 uh, the election of Obama, who ran as essentially an anti-war candidate. Now, because uh, because Democrats, I think, feel some loyalty to Obama, uh, and because the wars have been wound down to some degree, uh, although they obviously still continue, yeah. the, um, there's probably a certain uh, less uh, obsession with them or interest in them than there was Earlier, but yeah. I do think that it's it's something where many Democrats feel strongly. I mean, people I talk to quite a bit uh, feel very strongly that that there that that the the policies, uh, especially uh, in terms of the aggressive NATO policies in Eastern Europe oh. around Ukraine, yes, could lead the country into even a, a much more serious situation where where there's a war with a nuclear armed Russia. Um, and and so I, I do think that there's a feeling that 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 the aggressive neoconservative approach to sort of finding enemies around the world yeah. and then riling up the, the public to get them to want to go to war with these different enemies um, is a grave danger to the future. It's only a grave danger to the economy because so much money is now being uh, devoted to these issues, uh, including a trillion dollars that's being prepared to be spent on modernizing the American nuclear arsenal. Yeah. So a lot of things come to bear here. Uh, and it's not, But of course, with Hillary Clinton, it's not just her hawkishness. I think it, that is seen as sort of part and parcel of her uh, lack of uh, principle when it comes to things like standing up to Wall Street right. or um, really believing in many of the important issues that the Democratic Party feels apparently pretty strongly about things like income inequality, mm-hmm. um, trying to do more dramatic steps to to address some of the problems the country faces. Uh, Clinton has argued, and I think this is, some some people say it's a strength of hers, that, that change should come incrementally, mm-hmm. that there shouldn't be any effort to take on really big efforts, uh, that, uh, that those are more practical that there's more possibility of getting the Republicans to go along with smaller programs rather than bigger ones. Hmm. So I think, I think there's, a, there's a, there a combination of factors that have made a number of Democrats very unhappy with her, uh, and they don't see her as really a, as, as a standard bearer for the things they care about.
Um, and I think the Democratic leadership may have made a, a strategic mistake in essentially trying to pave the way for a, a Clinton coronation. There could have been a much more lively, diverse primary process. Uh, you could have seen Elizabeth Warren in the race, for instance, or yeah. uh, some of the younger Democrats who uh, might have, have had a chance to get their feet wet in this process. But there was this effort to essentially um, just put up Hillary, maybe have a, a token piece of op- opposition. Um, and I think in some ways, Senator Sanders, who's not even really a Democrat, he's an independent, uh, was seen as just, oh, that's someone who can sort of uh, be easily brushed aside. Right. It turned out that that was not a correct assessment. Uh, he's obviously provided a much more um, uh, effective opposition to her than anyone expected. Uh, and, he, and he's rallied a large part of the Democratic Party, especially the younger people, yes. uh, to believe that they actually can bring about more significant change and not just look for the small little policies that might move things forward a, a few inches here and there. So I think that's something where the Democratic leadership may have outsmarted itself. Hmm. They thought by having essentially a coronation yeah. that they could save up their money, they could, they could apply their money to the general election. Right. Um, they didn't anticipate Donald Trump. <laughs> they probably expected a, a more traditional Republican who would, right. who would have neoconservative foreign policy positions and a more reactionary position on issues like Social Security or Medicare, wanting to privatize them. So I think they, they saw that Hillary Clinton might make a good match against that kind of Republican, maybe a Jim Bush, for instance. Right. But I don't think they anticipated Donald Trump, and nor did they anticipate how strong the Sanders campaign would be. And, well, if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, our guest is uh, journalist uh, Robert Perry, whose new book is America's Stolen Narrative. We're talking about the party cracking up, and it's a difficult, difficult balancing act for Hillary Clinton and for the Democratic establishment to try to focus on the general election as well as uh, rallying uh, the troops. And it seems so far that the decision has been made by the uh, Clinton DNC uh, camp to not bother with the uh, the Bernie Sanders supporters, the millions of largely young people, and just say, oh, I, I guess they assume that these millions of people will just, because they don't like Trump so much, just automatically have some enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. And it's it's a difficult position for them to be in. Uh, but I would think that they could at least try to to say, to mouth the words, which we all know Hillary Clinton is pretty good at mouthing words, whether she believes it or not is another question. But they could do that. They don't seem to be doing that. In fact, one of Clinton's top aides actually used words I can't say on the radio about uh, uh, what, you know, to heck with the uh, Bernie Cl- uh, the, the Bernie Sanders uh, supporters. I I just I'm not sure if that's a good idea. And we've talked a lot about you know foreign policy. I I'm you know I'm still not sure how much people the the people in question the persuadable voters and that's who it's all focused on care about foreign policy. And and as you pointed out, Donald Trump does not have the neocon passion for interventionism. 
do we that obviously Hillary Clinton does do we really know this I mean one of the weird things about Donald Trump is we have no idea what he really stands for except you know he doesn't respect anybody as far as I could tell do we know this could this be a rather odd switcheroo of the Democrat being the overt hawk and the Republican being for less military intervention and could could that aspect of Donald Trump actually grab much of the traditional anti-war base? I don't know if there's enough numbers for that. What are your thoughts, Robert? Well, I think there are two things. One, one I think that the people expected that the Republican Party would be would have a would have a very contested, uh, yeah. disruptive convention. Remember, that was that oh, was yeah. the thinking yeah. just not that long ago that that, oh, that, yeah. that it would be a brokered convention that. Uh, the Cruz people might be able to prevent Trump from getting the nomination, and that it would be thrown open, and there'd be multiple ballots, and so, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That turned out not to be true, apparently. Uh, it looks now that, uh, yeah. that Trump is the presumptive Republican nominee, and that yeah. the party is beginning to rally around him. Uh, obviously, the neoconservatives are, are really the, the, the remaining major point of opposition to Trump within the Republican Party. Uh, some of them have announced that they're going to switch over to Hillary Clinton already. Yes, yes. Um, but I think the uh, the other thing is that among the people I speak with or, or I email with or in communication with, I get a sense that it's going to be a very hard sell for the, for the Democratic Party to get the Sanders people and these sort of anti- more anti-war progressive Democrats to get on board. Yeah. I think, I think you could have a very disruptive... Uh, uh, convention, or at least a, a very sexy so. convention. I expect so. Uh, for the Democrats in mm-hmm. Philadelphia, you could have. Uh, there apparently the, the Sanders people plan a number of marches. Uh, they uh, they they will obviously be pushing for uh, more of their agenda in the uh, mm. uh, in the platform. Yes. And depending on how things go, there's always the possibility that something happens that changes the whole picture yes. you know, around perhaps. Mm-hmm. investigation into uh, Clinton's emails or mm-hmm. something else mm-hmm. that could make the Democratic convention the one that is actually oh, yeah. more contested and dramatic, if you will. Um, and, but I do think that that doesn't appear to me that that there's going to be a large swing of of anti the anti-war Democrats into the into the Clinton camp. I think you. People I talk to are, are thinking about voting for third parties, or some of them actually say they'd rather have Trump because they feel he's less dangerous in terms of how he would approach the world, I mean, even though yeah. he's obviously not very um, uh, informed about many things and has some rather say. wacky yeah. uh, offensive ideas, yeah. that he does talk about the need to negotiate with people. You know, he, does, he sees no reason to make enemies out of, out of the Russians or the Chinese even said he'd been willing to speak with the leadership of North Korea. So he's so what he's presenting is someone who, who would like to try to see if, if he could make the world work through negotiations, uh, more like his, his business his bu- right. work, rather than, than, than sort of create all these enemies, mm-hmm. ratchet up the pressures, bring about military confrontations, um, which is what we're beginning to see. Uh, even under Obama, and Obama is far less hawkish than than former Secretary Clinton. 
Uh, we're already seeing the neocons within his own administration, however, push for many of these policies um, in terms of uh, building up NATO on Russia's border, mm. um, going more aggressively against the Chinese uh, in their backyard of, of eastern, uh, the eastern or the western Pacific. So you have this. So you have this. Um, you have this possible uh, clash between people who, who on the Democratic Party, who do who do feel very strongly about peace issues, yeah. and are very tired of this what appears to be a perpetual war. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that Hillary Clinton is not speaking to them. She's made no effort. Uh, if you listen to what she heard the last debate, when she was very hawkish when it got to the issue of foreign policy, uh, she spoke before the uh, American-Israeli Public uh, Affairs yes. Committee um, uh, and was and offered a very pro-Israeli, uh, very aggressive position for the Middle East. She vowed to take the U.S. relationship with Israel to the next level and yeah. to bring in... Uh, Israel's right-wing prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu, for consultations immediately. Mm. So she's taken positions that are quite clearly favoring the neoconservative side of this, uh, and that has caused a great deal of consternation among uh, this body of Democrats who really feel that the Democratic Party should be much more uh, the peace party, the party of negotiation, and not the party of war and confrontation. Boy, you would think, and it's, it's you know, the, there's right and wrong, there's what serves America's interests and what harms America's interests, but I'm sure the focus, at least on the, the, uh, the new Democrat, the uh, neocon Hillary, DNC, Debbie Wasserman Schillside, is electorally, what is going to work? Where are the numbers? Do enough people care about this? Is it going to motivate people? I, I sense that they have... This Democratic Party establishment, the, the the Clintonistas, as some have called them, figure, well, the Sanders people, what are they going to do? Vote for Trump. Trump is crazy. Uh, that, you know, there's the fear of Trump. And we all know how powerful fear is as a motivator, probably the biggest, uh, that the fear of Trump will pull them back into uh, voting for the Democrat. And, and I wonder, I, I thought it was an interesting uh, headline recently in the New York Times that uh, something about Sanders doesn't mind harming Hillary Clinton. Well, I thought that was an odd headline, I have to say, because he is running to win. So, yeah, he wants to win. <laughs> but the concern, you know, I think may be uh, the, the convention. They, the, the establishment, is certainly going to say, oh, my goodness, you better unite behind Hillary Clinton now. They've been saying that for over a year, actually, as if she was entitled to it. They're going to argue that a divided convention, which I fully expect to happen, uh, may help a Trump victory. They're going to be saying that. What do you want to help Trump? Fingers of blame will be pointed in all directions. An obvious lesson uh, comes from the Clinton DNC leadership, which blatantly disenfranchised Bernie people and then blamed them for being less than civil uh, in uh, Nevada. That was an interesting situation. I expect that strategy to prevail from the chair of the convention that, you know, if, I mean, they're stacking the rules committee uh, with, with people like uh, Barney Frank, who clearly is after a, a position in the cabinet, uh, and they're, they're stacking the platform committee. And if the large minority of, of Bernie people object, they're going to, you know, say, you guys should just shut up and be civil. I wonder your thoughts on how this scenario will play out. 
will that will that help Trump? Do you think will they be right in saying this will help Trump? Or, or I, I don't know what uh, else the options are. Well, I guess I'm not sure that that's that whether the that the, the helping Trump argument is going to be very strong or effective uh, in in dealing with this. I wrote the piece about the coming Democratic crackup. I guess a week or so ago, and in the and I think at the time people. Some people thought that's odd. You know, it's more people talking about the Republican crack-up. But I think in the last week or so, what we've seen is this actually moving faster than I had envisioned. Uh, uh, and you're and like when you saw the the situation in Nevada, right. the, there there is this um, there's a great deal of anger among the the, the, the Sanders people. They feel they've sure. they've they've not been given as uh, fair a shake by the by the Democratic Party. Uh, and yet they've still done extremely well. They've won a, a number of races. They clearly have not amassed as many votes or delegates as uh, as Secretary Clinton. Right. But they've they've done much better than anyone thought. So they, I don't think they're going to be uh, told to sit down and shut up and do so just because uh, this fear that it might help Donald Trump somehow. And I think that's pretty much what happened in 1968. Uh, I don't think many of those Democrats wanted Richard Nixon to win. Right. But the passions were so high, and the, and the stakes were so high in their view, that they had to fight this out. And so they did fight it out. And, the, and clearly what happened in 68 in Chicago was a, a, a real black eye for the Democratic Party. Yes. And was a factor in Nixon getting a big lead and basically barely holding on to it as we got, we got into November. But, the, um, but here you have similar passions, in some ways more directed at, at domestic issues, yes. I would agree, than things like income inequality, the, the loss of jobs or to overseas companies. Um, those kinds of issues which are, are driving the Trump campaign in many ways also could drive uh, the Sanders people not to simply back down. Because these are important questions. And, and the other point is that Hillary Clinton is not liked by the American people. There was a recent poll that had her with 24 percentage point negative, net negative. Um, net some of negative. these recent wow. polls, one by Fox News that just came out, show her actually losing to Trump already. Yeah. Um, and and it's, yes, it's possible that after the Democratic nomina- uh, convention there'll be a boost for her. But it right now it looks very questionable is whether she could win um, in many of the key battleground states and also in some states that are traditionally democratic like Pennsylvania and Michigan uh, you're seeing uh, her either running neck and neck or or even somewhat in some cases trailing um, Donald Trump so the Democrats have 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 they were ignoring some of the problems that you get with Hillary Clinton she is not a particularly good candidate no uh, she showed that in, in 2008. Um, she is not well-liked by the American public. Right. So pretty much the only game the Democrats seem to have at this point is to further demonize Donald Trump and hope that his negatives, which were, high, which were higher than Hillary Clinton's, will scare so many people away from voting mm. for him that she can sort of somehow eke her, her way to the victory. Now... Mm. Uh, yeah, well, that is increasingly questionable. Well, in t- uh, as these polls are showing, in two thousand, Democrats oh, may have just assumed that this was going to be an easy ride, um, and it doesn't appear to be shaping up that way. And in two thousand four, 
John Kerry was not Bush. They wanted people to be afraid of Bush a second term, which was not unreasonable. But that you have to have enthusiasm. You can't be just not the other guy. And, you know, like, you know, you can learn all kinds of lessons from history. People on the on the Hillary side could say, well, 1968, the blame the blame for Nixon getting elected was the peace people uh, didn't go along. They didn't have enough enthusiasm for Hubert Humphrey. Uh, The other side, I think, could say, well, had the establishment not fought so hard for this, uh, you know, middle of the road, centrist, unenthusiastic uh, Hubert Humphrey, then we would have won. I tend to fall down on that side. And I'm sure these discussions will go on as to what the lesson really is. And on the subject of Donald Trump, some of his most solid support is from working class Americans. This used to be the base of the Democratic Party. I can't tell you how many you know working people, construction people, just working people are very much for Trump. I think it's he's against their interests, but they are still for him because largely the Democratic Party uh, abandoned its base. In the 1990s, they went for the easy money. They knew they needed money to win a campaign, to run a good campaign. Where's the money? It's in the hands of the wealthy people. So that's where they went. And in doing so, they've abandoned the party. I wonder what your thoughts are on this, Robert Perry, about... Uh, By abandoning its base, has the Democratic Party uh, caused the rise of Donald Trump? Have they been part of the uh, rise of Donald Trump? Well, I I think they have. Certainly in the 1990s, what you saw was uh, the Democratic Party not just turning to Wall Street for money and then also reducing regulation on Wall Street, which contributed to the eventual collapse in uh, in, in, uh, 2008. But also, they were um, they went along with the the trade deals. Uh, uh, President Clinton right. uh, was a chief promoter of, of NAFTA, which was um, this idea of, of of opening up trade with with uh, have reducing tariffs and opening uh, access to American markets uh, for countries that are have much lower wage bases. And at the time, if you remember, uh, Ross Perot. Um, this eccentric billionaire who ran an fairly strong independent race right. uh, said this would be a sucking sound, drawing jobs down to Mexico. And he was right. And he was largely ridiculed, yes. uh, not just by the by both parties, but he's also ridiculed by the mainstream press, the New York Times, the Washington Post. Everyone was on board for this so-called free trade. Uh, and it turned out that in many ways, um, Perot was right. And that's what we're now seeing playing out, because... And for a while, the the Republicans were able to rally these these working class people around sort of hatred of government. Right. That the government was helping the black people or helping the Hispanics, and so so white the white working class was sort of pulled to that the so called Tea Party approach, mm-hmm. which was hostile to government, basically let let the business do whatever they want. Uh, but that I think is also beginning to fade because what Trump represents is something different. He represents the idea that the government should should help the the average person. He he's he's for he's for medic uh, Medicare. He's for Social Security. He's not one of the Republicans who who has has so gotten themselves into the idea of getting government out of everything mm. that he that they that they were calling for the privatization of Social Security, right. basically elimination of Medicare. Uh, Trump 
doesn't go along with that. And so, and so he's actually rallied the, the, these working-class whites in particular yes. around not just some of the racial stuff, which is pretty ugly, the, oh, the yeah. anti-Mexican stuff, oh, yeah. but also around this idea that, that you just can't turn everything over to Wall Street either, mm. uh, and that these trade deals, which may have been very profitable for the multinational corporations, are not good for, for cities or towns in Pennsylvania or in Ohio, or in Michigan, or in Indiana, uh, and that's and that's resonating. It is that's clearly resonating with the American people, and they're not and they're not crazy to think that way. They're seeing these towns and cities decay and fall apart. If you, anyone who's visited Detroit in the last number of years oh, sure. is, sees this on a massive scale. So Trump is addressing that, and in a, in a way, Sanders is addressing that. Yes, and and that has led to this. Uh, this rejection of the the elite opinion about oh we need more trade deals oh we we need to yeah. have, give more authority to Wall Street to to kind of do what they want because aren't they great mm. and I think um, so the the American people are kind of calling are calling out some of those um, uh, these sort of conventional wisdom ideas mm. that dominated Washington and 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 the opinion circles for so many years now. Um, now you're still seeing some some other aspects of this that that for some people are more important. For instance, uh, on issues of gender or or gay rights, right. uh, some people are are rallying to Hillary Clinton because they see her as a champion of those kinds of issues, which is which is certainly understandable. Yeah. But on on sort of the more core economic questions and and these and issues of war and peace abroad, it seems to me that Hillary Clinton is out of step. And the Democratic Party may put themselves out of step by making her their standard bearer, uh, especially if she tries to now maneuver more toward the center. I'm not sure there really is a center yeah, anymore really. in the way we we thought about it. I think this is a very polarized country, and people um, are not just willing to kind of triangulate anymore yep. and cut the difference. They 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 want to have real change, and the Democrats are putting up a, a <laughs> legacy candidate. A, a continuity candidate, if yeah. you will. Yeah. Um, it's, she's certainly not a change candidate. Not and that's where I think they may have outsmarted themselves by picking someone they thought would work up against a Jeb Bush or, or right. someone of that type. And now she finds herself in a very different situation. Uh, and and I, you know, I think there are a lot of real reasons to be very afraid of a Donald Trump presidency. Absolutely. But I'm sensing that many Americans are, are willing to take that risk rather than have continuation of the same old, same old. And the, as you know, Robert Perry, there are many years where the election is, yeah, we want more of the same. Things are pretty good. This is so not that year. And if it were that year, she'd be in, in great shape. I think, you know, people have to know what the heck the Democratic Party stands for. And I don't see that we we have any any clear brand. I mean, this has messed up the party in the past. You know, you, you when you look at Donald Trump, you, you kind of know what there is there. But Hillary Clinton, what is that? I, I think, you know, it, a lot of this is marketing. We're selling a product. We want people to buy it. We need a clear brand, don't we? Well, that's true. I think I think it, on, on some issues, I think uh, Hillary Clinton presents you a, a clear choice. I think, and, and in some very positive ways, yeah. uh, she obviously favors uh, women's rights. Right. right. Um, she she's been very strong in support of, of opposition to bigotry against gays or transgenders yeah. and so forth. Yeah. 
Um, Social I issues, sure. So, and, there, and obviously that, that appeals to a number of people. Yeah. There is a sense that uh, some, that it's her turn. Mm-hmm. It would be fair uh, to, to reject a woman in this situation. <sighs> right. So I think it, there, is a, there are a lot of issues and feelings that are, that, that are rather, that are fairly raw among many Democrats. So if, if, for instance, at the last minute she were denied the nomination, I think there would also be a huge amount of anger among uh, uh, many of her very staunch supporters. Um, on the other hand, if, uh, if, if, if she goes through with the, as, as the nominee, she'll, she's going to be a very, I think, um, flawed and wounded candidate as she goes forward. Yeah. Uh, she's just, it just, she, she really is not touching the kind of, of fundamental issues that, that, that a large number of Americans want addressed right now. They really want serious action taken to, to fix up this country. Uh, they want they want their jobs back. They want their cities back. They, they're, uh, they, they, others are are very afraid of what might happen if we continue these kind of aggressive foreign policies. Oh, yeah. uh, where is that leading to? How much money is that going to cost? And will it even maybe lead to a nuclear confrontation with Russia? Those are big issues. And on those, she's just not she's not really representing. I think where many of the American people are headed. And so it's going to be a tough one for the Democrats to, to I guess, scare people enough about <laughs> Donald Trump. Um, and we'll see if, if Trump is a more skilled politician, that he can somehow finesse that or somehow relieve those fears. Um, but it, it, it doesn't look to me to be the kind of landslide for the Democrats no. that people were thinking about just a month ago. Well, who knows? We will see. There, I, I can't help but think that either before the election or after the election, there seems to be kind of a crack-up that just plain is happening that seems sort of inevitable. The uh, title of the article is The Coming Democratic Crack-Up. Uh, our guest has been uh, journalist Robert Perry, whose new book is America's Stolen Narrative. Going to be interesting yet ahead. Thank you so much for being with us again, Robert Perry. Thank you. Nick Lowe. Song is called Cracking Up. Cracking up. I'm getting ready to go. Had enough. I can't take anymore. No pills that I can take. This is too real. Just like an earthquake, everybody